So this is our, if you're new and you haven't been in here, we basically for the last 12 weeks been doing uh, a series called Fundamentals of the Family, uh, where we have basically, I mean, we started with just uh, presuppositions of, of what we must be before we can even jump into this study, all the way through what's the role of the husband, role of the wife, what is marriage. Uh, we talked about uh, communication, conflict resolution, uh, parenting, the roles of the child, all this stuff. And um, these last few sessions uh, have really been focused on um, things that we walk through in our families. And so we talked about finances last week because finances become uh, a, a, a pressure point often uh, in our families um, that can either, one, uh, drive us together, you know, as we trust in the Lord in the midst of uh, loss and poverty and hardship or financial decisions, or we, uh, we act on, you know, we act emotionally or or, or we act irrationally in the midst of it, and that can cause turmoil within our family. So we talked about that last week. Um, we talked about, uh, uh, like I said, conflict resolution. Uh, biblical decision-making was another thing. And all these things have a common thread in them uh, because these are just things as families that we're consistently walking through. We're always making decisions. And so to, to kind of nail down, well, then how do we make a decision biblically? It's just good. It's good to... At least see that and to know, you know, this is, this is how we ought to be striving to, to make biblical decisions. And like I said, with conflict, um, the Lord uses conflict. We know that trials and, and suffering and hardship are always instruments uh, for refining us, changing us into the image of Christ, causing us to cling to him. And again, so conflict can be a wonderful thing. Um, and conflict will come. Uh, but then there's another side of that that, you know, many... Uh, points of conflict can be avoided if we are just living according to the Word of God, walking in the Spirit, um, uh, being slow to speak, slow to anger, those sort of things. So today, in session 10, can you turn it down a little bit, Brad? In session 10, uh, we're going to look at the, I call it the fundamentals of physical intimacy, just because we're doing the fundamentals of the family. But the reason we're doing this, and I do need to preface it with if, if you're in here and you're single and you're like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be in here. We're not getting into techniques or anything today, so don't worry about that. But, like, uh, but this is stuff that even when we do premarital counseling, we always tell everyone, you know, we wait to the end. We don't want to awaken anything unnecessarily. Uh, and this is something that any married couple understands that, uh, I mean, this, this can easily become um, a point of contention in the marriage, uh, which then affects the whole family. And so this is something that we, you know, I mean, me and my wife, we talk consistently with couples about this, either whether it's things that arise right out the gate that you don't even see coming or things that just uh, over time began to happen that you just, you know, you weren't, you weren't thinking would happen or, or you just, you're just running into to new things that you just didn't think about when you first started your, your marriage. Um, and, uh, and so both understanding uh, sexual unity, physical intimacy biblically Understanding uh, the the common things that we tend to fall into is uh, very beneficial for all of us uh, in our marriages and in our homes. Um, and uh, so, anyway, today it's, we're really going to be talking about biblically what is physical intimacy, uh, what are some of the, um, the the pitfalls that that happen commonly uh, in our marriage relationships, and then um, what does the Bible say about about uh, uh, about what this looks like in the the relationship, and so uh, I'm going to try to point you to some resources. The other thing too with this topic is often you feel like you're the only couple or you're the only people that are running into this. Everybody else's marriage is great, and and uh, you're the only ones that are struggling. You're the only ones that are having arguments or issues when it comes to physical intimacy. And it's just good to know that this is something we all walk through, and you need to know that. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about with. Decision-making, conflict resolution, all that, this is why the Lord has given you the body of Christ. You don't have to tell everyone all your issues, but you need to have people that you can go to and go, we're running into this. Is this common? Is this normal? And what, what did you do? You know. So, like I said, this is going to round off our, our whole study. Um, if you haven't been here, we printed out all the, uh, the past uh, weeks back there with all the, the blanks filled in. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the fundamentals of physical intimacy. So follow along with me on your notes. I'll tell you the blanks as we go through. So becoming one flesh, we talked about this when we talked about uh, the fundamentals of marriage and how God built marriage. 
Uh, it involves much more than just sexual relations. We talked about that. There's oneness emotionally. Uh, there's oneness um, uh, uh, theologically or spiritually. Uh, I mean, we're striving to, to be one in all that we do in our marriage. But it definitely has to do with actual physical intimacy. It refers to a broad concept involving the totality of life. However, there may be no place where the total sharing is more beautifully pictured or fully experienced than in the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Sexual intercourse establishes, expresses, and enhances relational intimacy between two people who have committed themselves to each other in love and in marriage. Physical intimacy is a blessing and gift from the Lord between one man and one woman in the holy bond of marriage. And God designed sexual intimacy to be a selfless, sacrificial act of love that is both glorifying to God and a giving up of oneself to one another. Within marriage, we're striving for intimacy for the glory of the Lord. And like I said, prior to being married, that's a hard concept to grasp. Prior to being married, if you're striving uh, for, uh, to, to honor the Lord and to glorify Him, you're striving for purity. You're striving to to stay away from uh, sexual intimacy outside of the bond of marriage. And then, like I said, all of a sudden you're married, and immediately this becomes a way that to, to be selfless, sacrificial, to glorify the Lord. It, it's, it's a holy thing. And sometimes that's hard for people to, to grasp right out of the gate, uh, especially if you've been striving for purity. On the other side, if you've been engaging in fornication, whether it's masturbation, pornography, or... or um, uh, illicit sex outside of marriage, then it also becomes a very hard thing within the bond of marriage to understand it in a selfless way because you've been acting on your desires and on your selfish lusts for so long. Does that make sense? And so you can come in it pure, striving for holiness and purity uh, when it comes to, uh, to sexual sin, or you can come in it with a bunch of baggage and, and worldly thought thinking and, and, and selfish practices. And both of those b- become problems when you get married. And so, again, we want to talk about both of those things and how do, you, how do you weave through that, both at the beginning and then throughout your marriage. Um, this is a quote from Ed Wheat. And I'll tell you, actually, I've, I've got a, a list of resources on the back of this that I thought will have been very helpful in my life personally, been very helpful uh, talking to, to young men uh, in the church, talking to young couples in the church that are back there that you can see. But one of them is called Staying in Love for a Lifetime. I just actually found this book recently, and I, I really enjoy reading through it. Uh, Ed Wheat is a family, well, I think he's passed away now. I'm not sure. Do you know anything about him? Uh, he's a, he was a physician that ended up coming to the Lord in the midst of his practice and just became, uh, you know, I just uh, uh, a really um, great uh, counselor, but, but also had the medical understanding of, uh, of a lot of things, and ended up doing a lot of counseling when it came to intimacy issues, the people in his church, and things like that. So he's coming at it from a physician perspective and a biblical counselor perspective. And I, I like his resources because I feel like it's a good balance of both. You know what I mean? But in, in one of his books called Staying in Love for a Lifetime, it says, It's up to each of us to discover the design for our marriage through a careful searching of the Bible and a willingness to follow the principles, instructions, and examples that we find there. It is God's will in every marriage that the couple love each other with an absorbing spiritual, emotional, and physical attraction that continues to grow throughout their lifetime together. It is possible for any Christian couple to develop this love relationship in their marriage because it is in harmony with God's expressed will. So again, I'll I'll share more from Ed Wheat moving on because he actually has another really good resource that actually does talk about the, the act of, of sexual intimacy, the physically, the anatomy of both people, and things that are just very helpful to read, like uh, just things that, you know, this is what it's like when you're in your 40s, this is what it's like when you're in your 60s, things that you're just, you know, as you move along, it's good to, to have uh, a perspective if, you're not already, if you don't already have men and women that you can talk to that are walking ahead of you. But the other side of it is he comes in biblically. And he's like, here's how God designed things and why. And this is why we're striving to be uh, submissive to his word. Um, So anyway, I I just really enjoy his resources. All right, so number one for your blank is sex is a problem area in many marriages. 
Sex is a problem area in many marriages. Um, that's funny. I forgot to pray. <laughs> it just occurred to me. Uh, don't let me forget. We'll pray at the end, all right? Because I want to make sure that we're, we're praying for one another through the week. All right, number one, sex is a problem area in many marriages. Uh, again, another good resource is uh, Wayne Mack's Strengthening Your Marriage. He has a very good uh, chapter in there on uh, physical intimacy and uh, sexual union and the issues that come up. One of the things he says is there is no area over which more marital battles have been fought and more dissatisfaction manifested. Multitudes of couples have sought divorces, complaining of sexual incompatibility. There are many couples who never seek a divorce who still have many conflicts over their sexual relations. If God created and and ordained sex relations as a promoter and expression of unity in marriage, why is it that many couples have problems in uh, in the area of sex? And again, Wayne Matt goes into it from a biblical counselor perspective. He's not a physician. He's a pastor, but he's, he's again, any pastor will tell you. I mean, this is a consistent topic uh, of, of conversation, uh, counseling conversation in marriages. Uh, like I said, whether it's things that you didn't foresee when you're first starting off your marriage or whether it's changes and things that occur uh, over time in marriage, this is uh, something that we all have to walk through. And again, it's just like financial stuff or any other thing. Uh, your your um, issues within with, with intimacy with a marriage can drive you tighter together, and you can walk through those things together, communicating well, getting counsel and help and advice, striving to be selfless, sacrificial, and glorify the Lord in this. Or it becomes something that you become embittered against your spouse. You begin to think your spouse, you know, usually the, the, the wife will think the, the husband, that's all he ever thinks about is sex, and the husband will think that I'm just not getting satisfied here. You know, and you start putting these things on your spouse, and it drives a wedge in the relationship. But again, it goes back to what we said about anything else. Uh, rather than uh, preferring one another, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, laying down your desires and, and your will for the out of love for the other spouse, this becomes a battlefield in the marriage. And it's something that God built for us to, to draw us closer together. So, letter A. One of the reasons, and I think this is a huge reason, that uh, sex is a problem in many marriages is because of unresolved guilt from the past. Unresolved guilt from the past. Whether you were sexually active before marriage whether you were engaged in pornography or even currently are, uh, whether you had an abortion beforehand and you've been, you've been, you, you're, you're still uh, struggling through that, or you've been sexually abused, there's often guilt that we bring into our relationship uh, that, can, that can last for a long time. Uh, and uh, to, to understand what you have to do when you're bringing in things like that from your past uh, decisions you made, things you've exposed yourself to. Um, any of us know that, that have walked through stuff like that before we became a believer or even as a believer. Uh, whatever you open yourself up to, I mean, you're going to battle that for the remainder of your life. Many times the Lord uh, gives easy deliverance over some things, but other things become lifelong battles. They're good battles because they produce holiness and sanctification. They produce humility and help you to see that you're not above anything. But again, uh, this is why we're so, we, we push on the children here at the church, whether the youth or the college, do not expose yourself to certain things because you can't unsee things and you can't unknow things and you will fight things after that. And again, for any child of God, the Lord will use that to grow you in holiness and to cause you to cling to him and to make you fight for sanctification. But if you can, if you can out of wisdom and listening to counsel and humility, not run down that path, then it just, it, it, it alleviates a lot of, of fighting and a lot of temptation and a lot of uh, turmoil that you're going to have to persevere through if you do go down that path. But what you need to remember is this. Jesus Christ overcame sin and death. His spirit is within you if you're born again. And if he can conquer sin and death on the cross, he can 
You have the spirit of Christ within you, the word of God given to you. You also can have victory over sin. That victory may be a lifelong battle, but you are victorious over sin. And so the solution, if you're bringing in unresolved guilt from the past, is confess that sin to the Lord. Repent, especially if there's repent of, of, uh, um, you know, if if you're continuing to practice and and continue to repent if you're, you're, you know, fighting and battling in your mind. And realize you have forgiveness in Christ. Sometimes we just don't trust him uh, in his forgiveness. And we don't trust that he has power over sin. And we don't trust that what he did on the cross accomplished our redemption and our justification. And you have to know that. You have to trust him and believe him. Rather than trying to, in your mind, you know, work out things in some sort of legalistic way. That if you can just be pure long enough, that Christ will forgive you. Or if you can just never do this again, Christ will forgive you. That's the whole point of him dying for you. Uh, He died on the cross and took the guilt of our sin upon himself. And if you believe in him, you have been forgiven and freed from that. Does that make sense? Again, I mean, you can apply this to many things in our life. That we just feel like we're the worst or we're the... But again, look at what Paul said. Paul said he's the chief of all sinners. If you think you're the worst, that's a good place to be. But then trust in the Lord that he saves those who recognize that they have nothing to give spiritually, right? It would be so much worse to think that you're better than other people in this room because you haven't done A, B, and C. And so I'm not saying you've got to go out there and experience things to realize you're the worst. You just have to understand that he only saves the worst, right? That's why he died for us. And so, again, if you're struggling with just the guilt that is there, remember what the Lord has done for you. And confess that sin, repent, and and follow Christ. Sometimes guilt from our past causes us to doubt the truths of his word. We must trust and believe what he says in his word about confession, repentance, and forgiveness. It says that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us when we confess our sins. Again, you know, what what our lack of trust in his forgiveness is really an affront to his character, right? And 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 his his uh the veracity of what he says. Um, you know, when we, when we feel like our sin is bigger than what his son did, then what we're really saying is you, you did not understand who I am. And, and it's, it's really just the back end of pride, you know? I mean, we can in pride think we're awesome, but we in pride can think we're the worst. And either way, you've got to trust that the Lord uh, on the cross did die for your sins. And if you believe and you repent that, that you have his forgiveness. Jesus Christ proved himself victorious over all sin when he rose from the dead. And if we have been born of Christ, we're a new creation in Christ. Um, and we have victory over sin because of his victory. Psalm 32 is such a great psalm of both. It, it expresses the, the weight of guilt that we carry because of our sin and the freedom that comes through confession and repentance and trusting in the Lord. In Psalm 32, David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Any person that hides sin, any person that's trying to weave together some sort of life for people to believe you're something you're not, always, always is being crushed under this weight. Um, you know, I know, I mean, I remember myself, you know, in the past, like uh, living a hypocritical lifestyle, and you're always wondering who knows what and how much do they know so you can talk to certain people about certain things. It's just a, it's a, it's a tax, it's taxing on your mind and on your body and your life. And there is freedom in just being honest. And there's freedom in just, in just, just basically pulling out that leg underneath the, 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 the tower of lies that you built and letting it all fall down and realizing, yeah, I'm, I'm nothing apart from Christ. But, uh, that David expresses that. When you keep silent about your sin, he says, my body wasted away through my groaning, groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, this is the hand of the Lord, was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with a fever heat of summer. So again, David's just expressing what it is like when you are not confessing your sins to the Lord, when you're not repenting, when you're striving to, you know, whether you're trying to weave together, like I said, some holy-looking life that other people think you're something you're not, or whether you're just uh, afraid of the consequences and you're, you're keeping it all in. But then he says this, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Again, the forgiveness that comes when we confess and repent from our sins. Not only do we feel it and you feel the relief and you, and you understand it, but, but that's the requirement as well. It's part of it. Um, and uh, so the Lord forgives you of your sin and forgives your guilt, and you have to trust him. First John 1, 7 through 9, 
It says, the blood of Jesus, uh, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, when we feel like we're too bad to be forgiven, it has less to do with you and your sin and more to do with your view of God and who he is. You're basically saying you're not faithful, you're not righteous, uh, and even though I'm confessing, I'm still guilty. And again, like there, there's, a, there's a bigger issue going on there uh, because it, it's like what we talked about when we talk about worry, you know? I mean, we talk about worry and we're not trusting in, in the Lord's provision. We're not trusting in the Lord's uh, um, ordained will for our life. And when we're worrying, we're basically telling the Lord, I could do this better than you. You're on the throne, but I should be there. And you're doing this wrong, and I need to be calling all the shots. Well, it's the same thing when you don't trust in the forgiveness of what Christ did on the cross. You're basically saying, I know you sent your son, but what he did on the cross was not sufficient to cover my sin. And it wasn't sufficient to forgive me of my guilt. And I need something more than what you provide. And so, again, we would never say that with our lips, but that's what we're doing when we don't trust in what he has told us. Now, again, if you're, if you're not confessing your sin, you're living in unrepentant sin, that's a whole different scenario. But if you are confessing your sin to the Lord, you are repenting of your sin, you're striving for holiness, you have to trust that the Lord, the Lord forgives those who call out to him. And, uh, and, and he has forgiven your guilt, and you need to trust that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know uh, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Again, if you have not been washed and sanctified and justified, yes, you should feel the conviction and the weight and the guilt, and that ought to press down on you to the point where you do cry out for forgiveness and you do say, I cannot do this on my own. I need you, Christ. But if you have come to the Lord, you've got to look at what it says there. You used to be that person. Many of us have awful past. Many of us in this room wish we could forget the things that we have seen and have done. And I wish to goodness that I could go back and, and change things. And at the same time, The Lord used all of those things in my life to crush me and bring me to Christ. So praise the Lord for that. And if that's what it took in my life, God knew that. And so remember that. Again, it doesn't mean it's a good thing. It just means that God used that wickedness and that evil in your life to draw you to him, which is a good thing. And you have to trust the Lord in that. And you have to understand that that is not who you are anymore. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You have been made new by him. You have a new spirit. You have a new mind. You have a new uh, motivation and, 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 and master. And, uh, and, and you are a new cre- uh, creation in Christ. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. So trust him. Again, many times our guilt is just coming because we don't trust him. And because we don't trust him, then that brings turmoil into the marriage bed and the relationship with our spouse, which affects the entire family. So that's letter A. Letter B, ungodly living in the present. Ungodly living in the present. Many times sexual issues are not really sexual issues. If there are other issues in the marriage, a lack of love, a lack of trust, self, a lack of selflessness or preference or kindness, gentleness or affection then there will be, uh, inevitably be sexual issues. If it is, uh, I'm sorry, it is difficult to be intimate with your spouse when there's a lack of unity and harmony in the marriage. Sexual issues may just be an indicator that there's a lack of biblical love in the marriage relationship. I would say very, very often this is the case. Many, many times, it's not because one, of the, one person's having an affair or because one, one person's into pornography or something like that. I mean, that definitely can be an issue, and that is definitely something uh, that, that, that you, you know, must be confessed and, and must be worked through. But many times, it's just over time and over a lack of practice of fill-in-the-blank, kindness, patience, gentleness, love, all the fruit of the Spirit, like what we're called to be with one another, then that always affects the physical intimacy of the marriage. And so, again, many times, if you just stop, stop thinking certain ways about your spouse, 
Stop doing habitual things that you've been doing over the years that were self-centered instead of selfless. Those kind of things, those become immediate uh, relief for the, the tension that you have physically uh, when it comes to your, your sexual intimacy. And many times it's something as simple as, will you please forgive me? I've been acting so selfishly. Every time I come home from work, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not coming home wanting to serve you or sacrifice for you. And then you change, and you begin to do those sort of things. Uh, those, those kind of things are just, I, I haven't been speaking in kindness or patience with you. Um, and, and repenting of those sins and striving to pursue Christ-like love towards your spouse, many times that is the issue and that is the reason that we have uh, issues uh, in the marriage bed. The solution there, like it says, begin practicing 1 Corinthians 13 type of love, godly communication, biblical conflict resolution, biblical decision making, all the stuff we've been talking about. Again, the Lord will use, just like we said with money, the Lord uses money as kind of a litmus test of, of who you trust, who you serve, right? The Lord uses money to help you to see where your allegiance is and, and, and what you're going to do when the pressure is on. In the same way, the Lord uses physical intimacy in the marriage of two Christians to both be an indicator of things that aren't going right in the marriage, I mean, right in, spiritually in the marriage, and it becomes a pressure point that can either cause you to, to uh, be embittered towards one another or drive you towards one another as you work on these things. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it means it's not rude, uh, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Again, there's a big one, right? Again, your marriage, you know, you, you just, you got this whole list of, well, you're like this, 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 that. you got to stop that. You can't have lists. The whole point of them sinning against you is for you to practice bearing up, Right? Every time they sin against you, that's an opportunity for you to be patient, for you to bear up with your brother or your sister in Christ, and for you to love your spouse. Lists of wrongs are terrifying things. Because, again, we talk about that. Do you want the Lord to judge you by the same standard you're judging your spouse? Then burn the list and get done with that stuff and love your spouse. Sexually, um, uh, oh, I was, I was sorry, I was done in here. So it rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, that's a huge one, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. So many times it's just because we're living in other areas in ungodliness, um, and, uh, and that is definitely going to affect uh, our physical intimacy. Letter C, ignorance or misinformation concerning their mate's anatomy. Now, again, you can be like, you know, well, it's not complicated. But the thing is, is there are things that you need to know about the anatomy of the other person, especially when it comes to preferring one another, loving one another, selflessly striving to, to please your spouse rather than yourself. And the physical, I mean, this is a physical union we're talking about. So you need to understand the physical things about your spouse. Some couples are unaware, uninformed, and uneducated when it comes to their spouse's anatomy. Simply because of a lack of information and experience, there can be guilt because sexual intercourse seems one-sided or selfish and a lack of satisfaction. So again, uh, you know, I, like I said, I mean, uh, physical intimacy is just a part of oneness, but it's a part of oneness, Right? And so, you know, we're, we're striving to be one spiritually and prefer one another. We're striving to be one in mind and, uh, and, and, and prefer one another in decision-making, all that sort of stuff. But don't, don't dismiss this or be like, well, physical intimacy, that's just, a, it's, it, it is a part of it. And you need to be thinking of one another, learning one another physically, preferring one another physically, knowing what your spouse does like and does not like, what brings pleasure and does not bring pleasure. What, what is selfless in that situation? You're trying to do that with, you know, taking her on dates or, you know, uh, striving to figure out what he wants for Father's Day, right? I mean, we're striving to learn and study and know. And so you need to bring in the physical intimacy aspect of your marriage and, and, and be a, study your wife and, and know her or, or your husband. Any helpful counsel concerning the physical relationship between a husband and a wife must include an explanation of the basic facts of human, human anatomy. Actually, this quote is a great book. I recommend this to every premarital couple. Every time we do premarital counseling, I tell them, you need to buy this book. We used to tell them, 
you need to read this book on your honeymoon or after your honeymoon. Now we tell them, you need to read this book the week before your honeymoon because there's things you need to know on the honeymoon that you may not know. And so when it comes to physical things with your spouse, and so this is very important. Actually, I just started rereading it. I've read it three times now. It's different every time you read it because you're different every time you read it. And so you need a, it's in the back. You should check it out. I highly recommend it. Again, it was written by Ed Wheat. But he says, a clear understanding of the sex organs and their intricate functions should inspire a sense of wonder that the perfect design God has built into our bodies so that we might experience the deepest pleasure in lovemaking and so we might successfully reproduce children in our marriage. Again, many times because our world is, has turned sexuality into something wicked and abhorrent to the Lord. Uh, actually, that's something Ed Wheat talks about as well. Uh, he says almost, I'm just I'm misquoting, but giving you the gist here. He says pretty much all the books of the Bible, almost all of them, have something in it about uh, sex. Many times it's warnings of illicit sex and, and the Lord, you know, things that the Lord disdains and abhors, things that are going to cause, you know, guilt and turmoil and, and, and wreck your physical and spiritual life. But then there are other, the other side of it that the Lord designed this. For, for our pleasure, for unity with a marriage. We've already talked about how the marriage relationship is unique from any other relationship. And this right here is one of the things that is unique from any other relationship. You do not have physical intimacy with your children, with your friends, with your mom and your dad, with any other person, your aunts or uncles. That is you and your one spouse alone. Anything outside of that is, is abhorrent to the Lord, right? But that is a good thing. In fact... I mean, that was one of the things that God built Eve to be a helper suitable for Adam and brought him together and said, it's very good. And so, again, you've got to remember that, that, um, that we need to, to, to understand and to know the, the body of our spouse and to know their likes and dislikes. So the solution for this is read sound material. Speak openly and honestly to one another and with your, um, uh, with your spouse about the issue. Again, that might be weird if you've never practiced that, but talk to your spouse. Talk to your spouse and, and ask. What, what do you enjoy? What do you not enjoy? How do you work? How does your brain work? How can I love you better physically in this way? Um, that book I, I mentioned in the back, Intended for Pleasure, here's just some of the things. I just went through the chapters and just tried to give you some bullet points of some of the things it talks about that you might be reading right now going, I need to read that book. But basically it talks about God's design. for He takes you to the Word and shows you the different things that the Lord says. Uh, the understanding the basics of each other's anatomies, techniques, common problems and solutions, impotency, sexually transmitted diseases, breast cancer. There are a lot of things. PMS, just different things like that. As a doctor, he's coming at it and he's saying, here's what it looks like physically. Here's what it looks like spiritually. And he does a really good job of marrying those two things. Planning for parenthood, uh, sex during pregnancy, sex after 60, 70, 80. There's just a lot of really good topics in there. And like I said, he comes at it from a... Uh, a biblical perspective. Letter D. The other thing that can cause problems is ignorance concerning their mate's temperament. Ignorance concerning their mate's temperament. God built men and women differently. Most of you guys have figured that out by now. And it's not just a physical difference. It's an emotional difference. It's a, it's a, it's a complete different temperament. Men are easily and quickly aroused. They're stimulated by sight. Again, even biblically, I mean, all the warnings in the Bible are do not look at a woman lustfully. Do not go near her house. Her words are like honey that drip from her lips, but her path leads to hell. You know what I mean? For the man, the Bible gives very good both warnings and uh, advice on how to live in purity. And it has a lot to do with visual stuff, with audible stuff. Uh, with things that you expose yourself to, that's the, how the Lord has built men. With women, there's a, there's a different way to, uh, to stimulate or excite. It's a, it's a different, we're built differently. Wives must realize that their husbands may desire sexual relations more frequently than they do. It is the husband's responsibility to exercise self-control and to think in terms of his wife's condition and desires but it's also the wife's responsibility to be mindful of her husband's temperament and to seek to be his helper by being sensitive and willing to fulfill his desires. Again, it's like everything else in our marriage. You are preferring one another over yourself. We're built differently. And in, in physical intimacy, it, it, it's just one more place that we have to display patience, kindness, 
love, preference, the, the, the same things that we're striving to do in other areas. Failure to understand the male temperament has tempted some women to harbor disrespectful, even resentful attitudes towards their husbands. And again, I mean, you, you can even just see it in the movies, and uh, you, you see it in counseling all the time, where, you know, the, the, the male is just this sex-driven fiend and, and is not romantic, you know, and then the, the female just wants, wants to talk and, and just to slow down and just show me that you actually love more than just my body, you know? But again, that's both people focused on their own desires. And so what you have to do is understand the temperament of the other person, talk and communicate, biblically strive for the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit, and the physical intimacy is just a, a, the, the outworking of, of love. Um, besides this, through ignorance, these women have put an unnecessary burden of temptation upon their husbands. So again, wives need to understand their, their husband's temperament, but then husbands, in the same way, we need to understand what women are like. They're aroused more gradually. They're stimulated by inward emotions and affectionate physical contact, touch. Uh, uh, Wayne Matt goes on to say, soft words, unselfishness, consideration, genuine love, patience, kindness, appreciation, compassion, acceptance, and tenderness are the things that excite a woman and prepare her for satisfying sex relations. The husband must deny himself for, the sake, uh, for her sake and be more interested in fulfilling her needs than his own. He must continuously treat his wife with kindness and not just when he wants sex. Live with his wife in an understanding way. I miss mean, 1 Peter 3, 7. That ought to be resonating in your mind with all things. You, you live with your wife in an understanding way. You're cherishing her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You're striving to treat her as a precious vessel. Understand that if you do not, then, then your prayers are hindered. You have a problem with God. And your sexual relationship, your physical relationship is part of that. Don't put that outside the box of, of spiritual things. You need to be striving to live with your wife in an understanding way physically when it comes to the act of intimacy within the bond of marriage. And that becomes a wonderful thing. It's just one more way to glorify the Lord. That's why when you read some of these books, they'll talk about it being, um, um, uh, you, can, you basically, you can practice holiness with physical intimacy. You can practice glorifying Christ with physical intimacy. Just like you can practice glorifying Christ with a, an employee as you're patient with them or you're kind to them or you know what I mean? It's like we, we apply spiritual principles to many aspects of our life. We understand how it works at work. We understand how it works with the children and what we're called to do there. We understand how it works with one another here at the church. But then we don't apply that sometimes to the bedroom because I, I, I think sometimes we just don't make that connection. But that's a place where we must strive to be selfless and sacrificial. First Peter 3, 7, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Apply that to your physical intimacy, to your bedroom, just like you do for everything else. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, apply that to physical intimacy just like you do everything else. And Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Apply that to physical intimacy. Like I said, sometimes we apply that to so many areas of life, but then we leave it out of that. And it's like, you've got to think about this through the lens of Scripture. Does that make sense? And you have to think about how we are built different and we are striving to love one another. Again, Read uh, sound material, and I've got some good resources in the back. Finally, letter E, ignorance concerning what the Bible teaches about sex. Ignorance concerning what the Bible teaches about sex. Again, like I said earlier, most biblical books have something to say about sex, whether it's from the negative or the positive. But we need to understand what it is the Lord says, because it's not all negative. Um, a lack of understanding of what the Bible says about sex, coupled with a desire for purity and holiness, especially before marriage, can make it difficult for couples to enjoy and express sexual intimacy after marriage. Like I said, I mean, we cheer these young men on, striving for purity, fighting against their desires, guarding their eyes, and all that sort of stuff. And then they get married, and we're like, go enjoy. You know, and it's, it's hard sometimes to, to, to turn that switch and to understand 
something you've been fighting against for so long now all of a sudden becomes something that you need to strive to, to selflessly do, and that just can be a battle. And so understanding what the Bible says helps prepare your mind for that. Um, learning how the Bible describes sexual oneness in marriage and learning how to practice the fruits of the Spirit in the context of sex helps Christian couples to view physical intimacy as another avenue for selfless, sacrificial love uh, of one another for the glory of God and the good of the marriage. And again, if this is something you have been practicing and you communicate well with your spouse and you've been striving for selflessness in this area of your marriage, you, you get that. It's just one more thing that's a piece of your life where you can glorify the Lord as you live selflessly and sacrificially for your spouse. But if you've been either engaging in something that is either illicit sex or pornography, something like that, or you just have not trained your mind biblically, then that's hard to grasp how this can be a holy thing, a God-glorifying thing, and an act of selfless, sacrificial love because all the opposite is selfish and you you isolate yourself, you act on your selfish desires, and you're doing something that brings guilt and and, and turmoil in your spiritual life. And so again, understand what God's word says. Dive into the word. Understand his perspective. He is the author of all things. He's the one that designed sex. And he designed it for the marriage relationship. And he designed it to be pleasurable. And he designed it to produce children. And he designed this for our good and for us to enjoy. That's part of it. And so remember that. God designed it to feel the way it feels. And that's part of, of his creation. And that's not a bad thing. Does that make sense? First Corinthians 7, 2 through 4, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Again, living with her in an understanding way. In phys- this is talking specifically about physical intimacy. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, and the husband, uh, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, many people have taken this verse to be like, your body belongs to me, and in a self-centered desire to appease their flesh rather than to sacrifice themselves, they use this, uh, you know, lord it over their wives. But this is the exact, it's saying the exact opposite. It's saying, do not deprive one another. It's saying, lay down your life, and your body does not belong to you anymore. You're one flesh in Christ. And so even your body, you sacrifice for the sake of your spouse. And, and this is specifically talking about the act of sex. It's talking about physical intimacy. It's not talking about other aspects. So, I mean, this is a, a straight-to-the-heart um, biblical uh, admonition. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Actually, there's many things in Proverbs, both on the negative warnings and the positives, telling you the, the glory of sex. And then Song of Solomon, the whole thing. I mean, that's what it's about. It's, 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 it's just talking about the physical union between Solomon and his wife. And, it, and again, you've got to remember, it's inspired by God and ordained to be in Scripture. And so, of all books, you have something given to us from the Lord about the act of sexual intimacy within the marriage. The whole thing's not just sexual intimacy, but it's in there. If you've read it, it's very explicit. And it's showing you this is a wonderful thing in marriage. And you need to think about your wife in that way. Here's a little bit from Song of Solomon 7. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. I tell, I tell young couples this all the time. Read Song of Solomon and think about your wife the entire time you read it. Read it and think about your wife and be thankful for your wife. Begin to appreciate her, her, her physical body, her spiritual beauty, all those things. You have to train your mind to think of her and her alone in this way. And you need to do that often. I think, I think we need to be reading Song of Solomon often as we strive to love our wives. And look at how Solomon talks about his wife. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of the fruit of the stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, and let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed, and there I will give you my love. 
Again, you know, if we were reading some other book, some counseling book, you'd be like, I don't know if you should read that. This is God's word. God gave us this in his inspired word for us both to read, for us to talk about with our, in our families, and for us to strive to love our wives in this way. It's just a beautiful picture of what the marriage relationship should be. And many times we think of other women in better ways than we think of our wives. Or we think of other men in better ways than we think of our husbands. You can look over there and be like, well, it looks like he does this and this and this and this for his wife. Or she does this, this, and this for her husband. Or their marriage looks great. you got to stop that. Stop coveting other people's relationships. Stop, stop being jealous of something the Lord is blessing someone else with. And begin to practice that in your own marriage. Love one another. And... and, and Immerse your mind in the truth of God's word and think of your spouse in this way. Train yourself to think this way about your spouse. All right, flip over to the next slide. So number two, biblical guidelines for sexual intimacy. Like I said, there are many negative things and then there are many positive things in the Bible. Just put off this, uh, this kind of physical Intimacy, and then there's put on this kind of Song of Solomon is the put on Proverbs five put on First Corinthians seven put on. But there's many things that you must cease and desist and never go down that path again. And so we have to talk about that too. Letter A, the Bible does forbid a misuse of sex. Sex is a gift given to us by the Lord between one man and one woman in the bond of marriage, and that's it. And in that setting, between those two people, it is a gift from God. Taken out of that context and used in any other way, it's abhorrent to the Lord. It brings turmoil in your life. It it can even cause you to head down a path where you forsake Christ forever. I mean, we look at Judas, and he he forsook Christ for 30 pieces of silver, and we think that's crazy. But there's many people in hell because of pornography. There's many people in hell because of masturbation. And there's many people in hell because they could not stop coveting other people's wives. Or, or, and, and it doesn't even have, you don't have to be like Solomon where you have a thousand wives. You just have to have a mind that, is, that, is, that it desires uh, um, to, to fulfill your lusts uh, with, with, with se- using sex in a, in a way that the Lord forbids. One is premarital sex. This is sex without intimacy and without commitment. 1 Thessalonians 4, a very strong warning. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is for you not to have sex outside of the bond of marriage. Period. It's always his will. And the only way that you will pursue sanctification and glorify the Lord is to abstain from sex outside of marriage. We all fool ourselves into thinking well, it's love, or it feels like love, or, you know, we're going to get married, or whatever it is. It's always abhorrent to the Lord. It's always a misuse of the gift he's given us, and it's always sinful. He says, each one of you uh, needs to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles, like the unbelievers. It's unbelievers that take their bodies and use it to fulfill the passions and lusts of the flesh. We are not that anymore. So whether you're doing that in your marriage or whether you're doing that and you're not married, that's always sin. It's never the Lord's will. It always leads to both pain, trials, and turmoil in this life, and it can be detrimental to you eternally because it can separate you from Christ forever. And you have to remember that. It doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter how far they go. We don't follow the culture and just stay one step behind, right? Well, they're engaging in this. Well, at least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not cutting off my genitalia. I'm just looking at pornography. No, it's all abhorrent to the Lord. He desires purity. He desires no immorality in our lives. So, again, premarital sex, always wrong. Masturbation, this is just self-focused sex. Whether it's impure fantasies, um, uh, it's, it's controlling, you know, you, you can control what you see and what you do. It's, it's self-centered. Masturbation is, is always uh, a sin. It's always abhorrent to the Lord. Again, Galatians 5 talks about this. While by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh, look at this, guys. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. The Spirit sets its desire against the flesh. So you can't fulfill your fleshly desires and submit to the Spirit of Christ and walk in holiness. It's one or the other. 
Uh, he says, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Again, apply that to, to sex. You know, if, you're, if you are, whether, whether, you know, you may be like, well, at least I'm not having an affair, or at least I'm not having premarital sex with some other person. But the thing is, is masturbation is the same thing. You're engaging in these things in your mind. You're acting on your selfish desires. I mean, sometimes people masturbate all the time just because they can't get a girlfriend. It doesn't, it doesn't, if you just had the opportunity, you would do it in a second. So don't think it's better than that. Or, or you don't, you're doing that in the marriage because you, you can't have an affair because nobody even wants to be with you. Again, sometimes we can think of ourselves as better or this is just a way to alleviate some sort of passion or desire that we have. But you've got to stop thinking that. That's worldly thinking. It's always sinful. It's never the Lord's desire. And you've got to master. You've got to master those things. And you've got to mortify your flesh. That's, there's a book in the back. I didn't quote it anywhere in here, but it's called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. If you haven't read it, read it every year. It's something you need to read all the time. You apply to everything, but especially with guys. I mean, I read this with the college guys all the time. You fight those things. You fight those desires. You take your mind captive, and you strive to, to, to use your physical body in honor of the Lord, not to engage in, in self-centered Um, uh, uh, fleshly uh, lusts. Anyway, he goes on to say, immorality, impurity, envy, and carousing, all those things can be applied to masturbation. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a really great book, again, I use all the time with uh, the college guys. It's called um, Sexual Detox, A Guide for Guys Who Are Sick of Porn by Tim Challies. This is in the back. You need to pick this one up too. He says in there, he has a whole uh, uh, chapter in there on, on masturbation. And he says, A close examination of the Bible's teaching on sexuality uncovers no reason to believe that God ever intended sex to be a private pursuit. Sex is intended to be a means of mutual fulfillment and expression of love in which a husband thinks foremost of his wife. It's a selfless thing. And the wife thinks foremost of her husband as they fulfill each other's needs. They also have their own needs fulfilled. Again, you're striving to fulfill her needs. She's striving to fulfill your needs. And in the process, you're, you're, you're having this relationship physically that is a selfless and sacrificial expression of love that ends up bringing pleasure and satisfaction and drawing you together emotionally and physically and spiritually if you're doing it to the glory of the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. It's never meant to be something for you to do without her or without him to fulfill your own fleshly desires. That's the very opposite. He goes on to say it's a beautiful picture of intimacy. This mutual giving and receiving, the heart of God's purpose for sexuality, is exactly what masturbation does not and cannot provide. Masturbation uh, strips sexuality of its divine purpose of mutual fulfillment. Where legitimate sexual expression is meant to produce unity, masturbation produces isolation and division. Masturbation deeply undermines a man's ability to deny and resist his most self-centered, sinful, isolationist tendencies. Masturbation simply cannot fulfill God's design for sexuality. And thus, it has no place in the life of one who calls himself a Christian. Again, read the mortification of sin and fight that thing. You fight selfish use of, of, of sex. Homosexuality, this is sex that violates God's original design. It's also evidence of God's judgment. In fact, in Romans 1, homosexuality is just a visual evidence that, that you're already under the judgment of God. The reason our society is the way it is is because we've been under the judgment of God for a century now. And, and we're just getting deeper and deeper into, into his uh, judgment here on earth. Um, it says in Romans 1, 26 and 27, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged natural functions for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Again, the reason there's so much sexual transmitted disease is because of the judgment of God. The reason there is homosexuality and transsexuality. I mean, we're, we're getting so far now that we're in this depraved mind that we're, we, don't, we can't even think straight anymore. And again, look at what we do. We always use, it's se- these things are always sexual. So we, we're under the judgment of God. And if you go keep reading, reading Romans, I mean, we're at the very end. I mean, you know, this, we've been under this for a long time. We're, we're at the end 
where we're calling evil good, good evil, and we can't even think straight anymore. And again, you, you see it. And people cutting off their body parts and cutting off other pieces of their body to try to reshape things and make things that it's just, it's not only disgusting and evil, but it's evidence that we are culturally under God's judgment. So again, don't just take one step behind it and be like, well, at least I'm not doing that. We're nothing like it. We're striving for purity, both within the marriage and, and if we're not married. Um, and again, 1 Corinthians 6 do not be deceived. There are no fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, or homosexuals. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. There are no homosexual Christians, guys. And there's no, there's no Christian that, that, um, that you know, engages in that stuff up here, but then doesn't act on it physically. I mean, it's the same thing. If you look at lust, uh, you know, even Jesus says, when it comes to sin, to look at a woman with lust is the same thing is committing adultery. Just because you're not doing it outwardly doesn't mean you're better than someone that is if you're doing it inwardly. And so, again... There are no homosexual Christians. I mean, there are people that say they are, but God says the opposite. He says none of them will inherit my kingdom. There are no effeminate Christians. Many people say they are, but they're not. And there are no uh, Christian adulterers. There are no Christians engaging in immorality that can do both. Again, there are people that are fighting temptations and fighting against these things, but you can't have both. You can't be a homosexual and a Christian. You can't be someone engaging in immorality and a Christian. You can't be an adulterer and a Christian, and you can't be effeminate and a Christian. Does that make sense? It's th- this, this person has to die for this person to be alive. You're fighting the flesh. Adultery, on the next page, that's sex that is not exclusive. Again, uh, Ephesians 5, we already talked about this. There should be no immorality, no impurity or greed ever even named among you. If you go read at the bold part at the bottom, there is no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater who has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. And then finally, pornography, visual adultery. Again, this just goes hand in hand, usually with adultery, immorality, and masturbation. So again, just because you're not actually engaging in this with the, the, a, a physical person doesn't mean you're not engaging in immorality or adultery. And, and the, the best verse for that is Matthew five twenty seven to 28, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, don't fool yourself into thinking, well, at least I'm not doing that. Because Christ says, if you're engaging in pornography, you're doing the same thing in your heart. You're committing adultery every time. And so, um, yeah, so stop. John MacArthur says the world claims to want love, and love is advocated and praised from every corner. Romantic love especially is touted. Songs, novels, movies, television, serials continually exploit emotional, lustful desire as if it were a genuine love. Questing for and fantasizing about the perfect love is portrayed as the ultimate human experience. It should not be surprising that the misguided quest for that kind of love leads inevitably to immorality and impurity because that kind of love is selfish and destructive, a deceptive counterfeit of God's love. It is always conditional. It's always self-centered. It's not concerned about commitment, but only satisfaction. It's not concerned about giving, but only getting. It has no basis for permanence because its purpose is to use and to exploit rather than to serve and to help. It lasts until the one love no longer feels satisfied or until he or she disappears for someone else. That's not what the Lord has called us to, either within our marriage or outside of marriage. We're called to selflessly, sacrificially lay down our lives for one another in this context and then for our wives in the marriage relationship. All right, the next part, letter B, the Bible does present sex within the marriage context as something spiritual and holy. The blanks are spiritual and holy. Again, there's a lot of admonition against it because this is something that mankind has struggled with all this, from Adam and Eve all the way until now. But there are wonderful things in the Bible about the, the act of, of sex. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God encourages sexual relations and actually warns against the temptation that may arise from deprivation or cessation. You need to see that uh, sex is just as pure as anything else you do for God. It's as pure as prayer, praise, uh, ministry, Bible study, and evangelism. You need to be sure that your heart and your actions at the time of physical intimacy are pure, uh, as they should be when you serve or worship God in other ways. Again, we, a lot of times we apply this to other parts of our life, but then we don't apply it to the bedroom. It is sex with the wrong person 
for the wrong purpose and or with the wrong thinking that makes it unholy. It's not the act itself. i got to move. Let's keep going. The Bible gives clear direction on how to glorify God through sexual intimacy. You can glorify the Lord as you selflessly strive to serve one another uh, in this act of marriage. Uh, we've already read 1 Corinthians 7 once, so I won't read it again. But again, you, your body doesn't belong to yourself. You, you, you give up yourself for your wife. Um, number one, underneath this, pleasure and sexual relations are not forbidden, but rather the blank is assumed. They're assumed by biblical writers. It's assumed that sex is pleasurable. It's assumed that sex is a good thing. It's assumed that God, God built this into marriage, and it's just, it's just when we abuse it that it is sinful. Number two, sexual intimacy in marriage should be kept in perspective. Sex should not be the basis for any marriage, and if your relationship revolves mostly around the physical, the physical is too important. I remember talking to a couple one time that they, they, they committed to have sex every single day because they thought this would keep their marriage healthy. And again, I mean, that's, that's fine if you want to commit to that. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that commitment. But over time, there were many things wrong with their marriage. And they ended up, I mean, it, it ended up being a wonderful, it, well, it's not over, but I, I mean, they, they ended up doing very well. But, but what it was just a very good example of the fact that this is physically, if you want to say it that way, a very healthy relationship. But spiritually, there were a lot of things awry along the way. And so the physical alone is not going to solve the spiritual. The spiritual leads to the physical. If you have a good spiritual relationship, then you will have a good physical relationship that will culminate and come out of that. It doesn't mean you don't have to work on the physical part of it. But again, if you have a good spiritual relationship, then you will be working on the physical part of it. Um, even, even if you're like, man, I just never thought about the anatomy thing. You'll go buy that book right now and you'll read it because you're striving to love your wife in an understanding way. Number three, sexual intimacy in marriage should not be self-focused. We've already kind of talked about that, so I'll kind of move through this one real quick. But again, this is the whole 1 Peter 3, 7. Study your wife. Ask questions. Talk about it. Not, not in the act, but like talk about it. Say, what, what do you, or you can't talk about it. You just, you just ask your wife things. Look at some of the, investigate what sexual desires your spouse has. Investigate the likes and dislikes of your spouse. Be humble enough to learn something new. Make personal hygiene a priority. Only request to do what is approved by both consciences and what is not physically harmful. Seek to fulfill the desires of your spouse, even if they themselves do not have the desire to be satisfied. And uh, uh, don't use your own body to gratify yourself. Again, it's, it's, it's selfless and sacrificial. It's part of communicating and making biblical decisions. Again, we, we apply that to buying a car. Apply that to your physical relationship. You know, we, we need to strive to, 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 to do, to, to, um, to have sexual relations with our spouse in a way that glorifies the Lord. And number four, sexual relations are to be regular and continuous. The husband and wife are to provide such adequate satisfaction that both burning, unfulfilled sexual desire, and the temptation to find satisfaction elsewhere are avoided. Now again, just like anything else, you know, I... I I don't know if you've ever been one, you know, like a, a relationship with another guy where you have, a, um, what do you call it, accountability buddy, you know, and you're, you're talking to each other about purity. But I always tell guys that wanna, want me to keep them accountable or want to have another accountability buddy, that's a wise thing. Definitely do that. And there, there's a lot of wisdom in that. But that person can't keep you from lusting. Do you understand? That's, that's on you. You're the one that has to fight in your mind. You're the one that has to put off and put on. You're the one that has to submit to the Lord. You're the one that has to apply biblical truth to your mind and heart. The other person can only be a help and a counselor. And it's the same thing within your marriage relationship. Um, you, you, you can't keep your spouse from burning with unfulfilled desires. Um, that's up to the spouse. But you definitely can help your spouse by not provoking those sort of things by ceasing or depriving your spouse of physical intimacy. So again, it goes back to communication. It goes back to submission, selfless, uh, selflessly talking about these things. Number five, the principle of mutual satisfaction means that each party is to provide sexual enjoyment which is due his or her spouse whenever needed. The blank is satisfaction. Again, part of selflessness is striving to please and satisfy one another physically. Um, number six, in accordance with the principle of rights, there is to be no sexual bargaining. This always happens when you have your list of wrongs. This always happens when you're embittered against your spouse. You never 
use sex against your spouse. It's meant to be something that drives you towards unity. And the last thing you want to do is take something the Lord purposed for unity and harmony and oneness and use it for division and faction and disunity. Again, I mean, we apply that principle to the church and we get it, but do it to your marriage bed as well. The Lord hates disunity and he hates factious people. Don't use sex against your spouse as taking something holy and good and using it for evil. That, that's, that's a wicked, wicked thing. Um, so again, don't ever have the attitude, I will not have sex and, unless you, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and never use it to punish or manipulate. Number seven, sexual relationships are equal and reciprocal. Mutual initiation of intercourse, stimulation, foreplay, and participation in the sexual act is not only permissible but enjoyed. Marital uh, rights entail mutual responsibility. So again, this is just this comes from Wayne Mack's book as well. But again, just you know, don't ever be like, well, that's your job, or you know, um, you, you you strive to uh, to to um, to both initiate and to love. And then number eight, sexual intimacy should be the culmination of a loving relationship. And I hope that's been clear through this whole thing. If you have a a, a good spiritual relationship, if you're striving to lay down your life for your wife in all these other areas of life, physical intimacy is just a part of the whole. Does that make sense? But it is a good indicator. It's a good litmus test on whether or not you are selflessly, sacrificially loving your wife, uh, submitting to your husband and loving and honoring him. Uh, the physical, if you're doing those things, the physical relationship will thrive. Um, again, you might have things to work on in the actual physical relationship, but if you're neglecting the, the oneness of your marriage and all the other aspects, well, don't ever expect the physical part to either heal that, fix it, or even to be there. That it, it, it will be, it, it usually becomes just one more place where you stand in judgment against your spouse and hate your spouse. And, uh, and, and critique your spouse by, in a way that you hopefully do not want the Lord to judge you. The sex act should be a picture of love and commitment that is already present in the marriage relationship. Husband and wives must seek to maintain a loving relationship with each other and to make physical intimacy more relational by quickly resolving conflict, working out other marriage problems in a biblical way, speaking words of appreciation, say I love you often, meeting each other's needs that you may not uh, that may not be related to physical intimacy and spending time and energy and resources to romance their spouse. Like I said, there's a, a list of resources. I'm not saying that that's a comprehensive list. Those are just ones that I've read or have begun to read uh, that have been just I thought very clear and very good. Tim Challies, uh, the first two Tim Challies books, Sexual Detox and Heath Lambert, Finally Free or Fight. It's, they're, they're basically books about fighting impurity, um, pornography, masturbation, lust, those kind of things. Like I said, I've read those books uh, quite frequently with young men. Uh, they're, they're always edifying to me as well. And again, if that's a battle, if you're, if you're fighting that battle, go get those books and kill that thing. Again, Mortification to Sin, I think, is the, my, my favorite um, by John Owen. Wayne Mack's Strengthen Your Marriage has a great chapter on this. Uh, John Street's Passions of the Heart, that, that's one that I've started, and it looks really good, but I haven't finished it, so I can't tell you all about it. But uh, it looks like... The, the other books, but just even more. He's, he's basically been counseling for almost 30 years, and it's just all the things that he's seen and worked through with, with, um, with uh, men and with married couples. And then finally, Ed Wheat. Ed Wheat's, like I said, are more focused on the, on the, the, you know, the positive side of physical intimacy, looking at it from a medical and a biblical perspective. And I just, I think that's something that every couple needs to read, the whole Intended for Pleasure book. So, if there's anything to, to see out of this whole thing is, again, the physical intimacy is just part of, of uh, the relationship. It's a way to glorify the Lord. Don't ever think you're the only one struggling with this. Just get help. Ask. Just, again, like you would for anything else. If you're in financial trouble, you, you go. You get help. And you say, hey, this is what's going on. You know, uh, what do I need to do? So same thing with the physical relationship. Uh, so, like I said, I forgot to pray at the beginning. I, do, I would like to pray real quick before.